0: Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we are here to talk about Week 12 of college baseball. Get you all set for that. A lot of action around the country this weekend coming at you. A lot on the line this weekend. They'll decide the, the NCAA's selection committee will decide uh, the the short list of potential host sites to host regionals and super regionals next week so this is the last chance to make a statement and get onto that shortlist there's a lot in terms of conference races going on this weekend and so we're going to get into all of that here and talk about some of the keys for teams to to win those series and touch on the uh the the national player of the year race as well which uh as we enter the the home stretch of the the season is uh it's pretty wide open, so we're gonna we're gonna get into that a little bit as well. Uh, first though, the Baseball America College podcast is presented by RapSoto. RapSoto has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use RapSoto data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The RapSoto National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the RapSoto National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, here we are. It is is May. We are into the stretch run. There are four weeks left before Selection Monday for some conferences. That means there's only one week before the conference tournament starts. For others, there are a few more than that. And for still others, there is no conference tournament this year. So you got, got four weeks left in the regular season. So an exciting time within college baseball. This weekend, especially, like I said, has a lot on the line, post-race, tournament bubble, conference stand-ins, like any, anything you want in terms of, of stakes, you you can find it somewhere in the country this
1: weekend. Yeah, no kidding about that. And I feel like this year I've had to spend a lot more time getting acclimated with just all the different formats and things like that. And that's true year to year, like year to year, there's all kinds of conference tournament formats, right? There's 18, there's 16. There's obviously the bigger conferences, ACC, SEC, are bigger than that. There's 14, you know, the big East WCC are famously smaller conference tournaments, but this year, of course, it's on another level where you have all of those options, plus a number of conferences, just not doing it at all. And so sometimes they're very famous about that. The big 10 famously not doing a conference tournament this year, but I, I kind of ran into that this week writing about the Mountain West conference. Like I'll, you know, I'm not too proud to admit, I totally forgotten that the Mountain West is not doing a conference tournament. And that wasn't the crux of the article, but it was just like talking about how weird their standings have gotten. And then realizing like, Oh, this is a really big deal though, because this is the auto bid at stake here, as opposed to just kind of seating in the conference tournament in what will probably ultimately be one bid league. So that's definitely been a little wrinkle this year is having to spend a little more time being like, what is their format for conference tournament? And when is it? And what's the, you know, how, how many teams are they taking and sorting through all that has definitely been an extra step this year that, that normally I'm just not having to take.
0: The, uh, the mountain West is uh, it, they have been hit very hard by COVID cancellations throughout the year. Uh, the standings are a mess San Diego State, the preseason favorite, started the year very well and has really kind of crashed lately. They got swept last weekend. Uh, Nevada, which I'm currently projecting as the as the the champion in our projected fields of 64, like they they're under 500 overall. It's uh it's an interesting deal. I didn't expect to be talking Mountain West here, Joe, but uh, here we are. And what a what a weird what a weird one. Well, like the, I agree. The-
1: the other thing, like that's weird about I guess while we're while we're in the neighborhood here, like the other thing that's really weird that I wrote about is that they have two teams, and you know one of whom is 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 Nevada, and they're they're kind of more on the periphery of it. But more, I'm talking about Air Force, where you, what you don't see in mid-major conferences often is a team with a good RPI that just doesn't have like a good enough record and everything else going for it to really be in position to have an at large bid. You see that in the SEC. I mean there's basically
0: right? no like, path for Air Force. They have yeah. an RPI of 30 and there's almost no path to the tournament.
1: <laughs> yeah, like you see this in the SEC where like this year like LSU's RPI is 23 right now and the, you know they're going to have to really hustle to get in. Like they could get left out with an RPI in the mid 20s. Like that happens in the SEC, but in a mid-major conference, if you have an RPI like Air Force at 30, it's be- usually because you're really putting up a gaudy record or you know, it's that you know, you really did a good job scheduling and you have quality wins left and right. And, and typically, even in that case, your record is good enough to where you're a shoe in to be an at-large team. And like the none of that apply or it's a banner year for the conference. And I think it's a pretty good year for the Mountain West based on the RPI numbers, but it's not a historically good year. So like none of that applies to Air Force. And yet somehow here they are just such a weird anomaly.
0: I should note that the reason why Air Force seemingly has no path is that they're nine and 12 in conference play. Uh, and again, there's no conference tournament to, to correct that. So they're three and a half games off the pace and they're 17 and 18 overall. It's uh, yeah. I
1: mean,
0: they're well, computer trickers. They yeah, are it's, like, it's I what mean, they are,
1: they would it, like, the thing about it is like, I also wrote this is like, if they, to, in order to get into that large range, like in terms of their record, like they would have to win enough games where they probably win the auto bid anyway. Like, that, I mean, that's probably the, the, what's on the table for them. It's just a just a weird deal all around.
0: And, uh, you know, also you have teams that have played as few as 20 games in this conference up to 31 or more, yep. I guess, actually um, 33 for, for Fresno State. I can do math. It's 35. Um, Fresno State and Air Force both played 35 and you have San Jose State sitting at twenty, UNLV at twenty-four. Uh, to to start to transition us out of the Mountain West, though, <laughs> this is another conference that uh, has. Uh, we're, we're not going to break down the the Nevada UNLV series, but that is a really significant series this weekend. A lot of stakes in that one. UNLV is tied with uh, or, or right there with San Diego State for first place. In the conference, I guess by winning percentage, they're slightly ahead of of the Aztecs uh, and Nevada slightly behind those two teams, if uh, if the pack can go in there and, and win this weekend, though, that would uh, that really go a long way to, to helping them kind of secure uh, their their standing at the top of the conference. Uh, All right. So let's, uh, let's switch over to uh, this player of the year race. However, that's uh, a very in, you know, some years when we're talking about player of the year race, it's a situation where it's like, well, you know, Adley Rushman is just kind of going to run away with this thing. And, you know, last year, we didn't really get to see what was going to happen with that. But, you know, whether it was going to be a situation where Torkelson took it and and ran away with it, or whether somebody else, maybe a Nick Gonzalez, could have inserted himself into the argument. But this year, there definitely is no one running away with it. And as we stand here with a month to play in the regular season, and the start of the postseason does factor into any player of the year debate that you're talking about, whether it's our award or the Golden Spikes, um, you know, voting on that final decisions on those are not made at least until after the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. But it's not one of the awards that like goes down to the very end. So, you know, it's it's probably I would say is most typically won in the regular season. And you know the, that that leaves a month left for the, these players to kind of distinguish themselves and. I wrote about this as part of a a piece that I did uh, seven storylines to watch over the final month here as college baseball enters its stretch run. And one of the questions that I posed is who is the player of your favorite? And the short answer is there isn't one. There's maybe a top tier of contenders, but there really isn't a favorite. Um, You know, you're looking at Kamar Rocker, who is excellent this season, of course. Jack Leiter hasn't been as good the last few weeks and is kind of pushing his way out of the conversation maybe, but he still leads the country in strikeouts. And if he is able to correct some things over the next month, like it's not like he's in a a bad position in terms of ERA. It just is like Rocker is, if you're evaluating it right now, Rocker has statistically the better standing. Um, So it would be hard to argue Leiter over him right now, but it's not such a big deal that they couldn't change places over the next month. Uh, Matt Nelson from Florida state is your national home run leader with 20. That's a big enough, loud enough number to, uh, to put himself, uh, in, in the mix here. And then Henry Davis, the Louisville catcher, having just a, a, a fantastic overall season, hitting 410 home runs, um, you know, playing really good defense. Uh, gotta, gotta count him in this as well. Joe, is there anyone else that that's caught your eye beyond those four guys? I mean, there there are plenty of other candidates. I, I just for me, I, I think it probably will come down to one of those four.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think I think those are probably the four that are in, in best position. You know, lighter has come back to the pack. If there's anybody this season who at any point looked like they might be the clear front runner, it was it was lighter kind of in the middle of that just incredible run that he had you know, as, as, as non-conference play bled into conference play, like kind of early in the conference slate where, where Leiter was just untouchable. Like he was maybe the only guy who's really gotten to that point this year, but you're right that it's, it's um, pretty, pretty wide open at this point. You know, if you, you, you look at the pictures and you start to, you know, it depends on how far out you want to stretch the definition, but you know, if you, you know, you've got Leiter and you've got Rocker who are very much in that conversation, but, you know, Gunnar Hoagland is not far off from that. I know he's a guy you included in your list and in the, in the story you wrote, but he's a guy who kind of feels like he's snuck under the radar in a lot of ways. And yes, he missed a start. I guess that's part of it. But, you know, don't look now. But had he not missed that start, maybe he's right there with with Jack Leiter leading the country in, in strikeouts. So,
0: well, they're also in a case the Hoagland and Nkese, uh you're really split in hairs trying to decide which one's better. You Hoagland, 4 and 2 247 96k's, Nkese 5 and 2 209 75k's. I mean, we could break it down further, but those are the big numbers and I don't know, those are those are pretty close.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there, there's um you know, you you also included Jacob Berry here with Arizona which I thought was was like, you know, he's an interesting guy just because he's not he's a freshman first of all like there's also that element to it um a true freshman a a true freshman yes and so you know the precedent for like what he's doing um I mean there just aren't a ton of precedents for what he's doing in terms of true freshman hitting 400 in the pack 12 and uh, hitting with power like he is um you know moving forward he's an interesting player because uh He also is interesting
0: because he's a little bit positionless right now. Like he's basically a DH. And like, when we start talking about awards, like, you know, it's like everything else in baseball, you know, MVP, whatever, uh, any level of baseball, like offense is really what we're primarily talking about. But like the the defensive side of the ball is a real thing. And if you're not providing
1: anything there, that is a negative against you. Yeah, I mean, that is that, that you know, if we're talking like uh, this is not a part of the discussion for the player of the year award, but like moving forward to Arizona, Jacob Berry is going to be interesting because that team recruits offense and develops offense in such a way that it probably can't afford to just have Jacob Berry be a DH for the next couple of years. <laughs> like he's, you know, he's going to have to have some refinement on the defensive side, I think for them to maximize what they are. But so, you know, he's an interesting name to, to throw in there as well. I, I look at Matt Nelson as maybe the guy for me, I think that's in best position because I, I wonder if you know, he really seems to kind of be hitting a stride at the right time. You know, he's in a lot of ways carrying a Florida State offense that is very top heavy and kind of inconsistent. I uh, look no further than the Troy series last weekend where they just, you know, Troy pitching really handled them in a lot of ways. But if he gets that home run number up to where he starts to push 30 by the end of the year, like that's just really hard to deny. Even if Henry Davis has an average that's 40 or 50 points higher and is also hitting for power in the, in the defensive part of it, I think that might be where. Nelson starts to become undeniable.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're making me pick like not pick who it would be at this stage, but project who we would pick, I think it's going to end up being between rocker and Davis. Um, I just, is it plausible for, or like it's plausible for Nelson to, to keep this pace up, but like, is it likely like at some point, like he has to slow down a little bit. I would think, um, you know he wasn't leading the home run like like he came on he's come on really hard here in the second half of the season and i just at some point that has to slow down i would think and uh you know if it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> and, and then you know if he is pushing 30 you know that's a it's probably a different conversation but my guess is he slows down slightly and you know then you know what happens how do you compare him against Davis then and all the rest of it. But, you know, I trust Davis to keep doing what he's doing. He's been sitting around 400 pretty much all year. Um, so I think that'll probably continue. And uh, I trust Rocker to, you know, the, the last he, – he had his down, air quotes, stretch, uh, and he seems to have corrected from that and, you know, seems to be to be rolling along uh, You know, plenty good. It's not like he's very far behind uh, Lighter in the strikeout race. He's nine strikeouts less than Jack Leiter. Uh, he has a one seven ERA right now. Uh, you know, he's doing a lot of the things that we thought he would be doing. So, uh, you know, just because Lighter has did what he did and Rocker had that bit of a dip. Like, I think that some people may have lost sight of just how good Kamar Rocker is, uh, but I think that he should be, he should, anyone that, that isn't, that, that, that has forgotten even a little bit, I think we'll be reminded this May. And, uh, that would, that would probably be where I would land um, where I would expect that we would land in uh, six, seven weeks, however long it is between now and when we have to, to make a final decision.
1: Do you think like the, so like we obviously, maybe some fans don't believe this, but you know, we, we really having been part of this process a couple of times now, I guess really just the one, I guess, you know, I keep forgetting, you know, it's just the yeah, last, yeah, last year didn't happen. Yeah. How long have I been? We asleep? did not award
0: a player of the year yeah. for the first time yeah. in 40 years.
1: Well, I've really been out for a long time, huh? Um, no, but, but now having been a part of these deliberations a little bit, maybe fans don't believe this too much, but you know, it really is just kind of a, we look at the player in the context of this season and, you know, stack them up against others. But I'm curious, your thoughts, like from a narrative standpoint, we're not in the, in the business of, of like, crafting the narrative for the for the award here, but like, you know, obviously there are narratives that follow players. Do you think like by the end of the season, the narrative on Kamar Rocker, let's assume that he doesn't do something absurd in the season with an yari below one or anything, throw another perfect game or no hitter in the in the postseason. Let's just assume a very traditional path from here. Um do you think by the end of the season like people are kind of bored of him and ready to like move on from it because we've just known him for so long? Or do you think it's like people would be more inclined to want to kind of give him this coronation at the end of a period of time when he's been, the, you know, argue, almost inarguably the most famous college baseball player out there.
0: Um, So does he win another national title?
1: Well, that is the question, right? I guess. I mean, let, I mean, let's assume no. Let, let, I mean, let's assume. I, so are if, it,
0: if it's no. a no, then You know, the way college baseball works, it's so strange. Like, we basically went through this with Rutschman then, right? That Rutschman won a national title, um, you know, as a sophomore, set college World Series records along the way, was the most outstanding player. People had become aware of him the year before because they played in Omaha and were what they were, but he was probably a little bit overshadowed that year, in part because he didn't hit hardly at all. Uh, but then you heard nothing but great things about Richmond that junior year in 2018, wire to wire, number one prospect, all the rest of that. Then Oregon state finishes its season with a whimper and a Corvallis regional where, where they get upset. Um, so well, that's 2019. My years are, uh, we're, we're slightly off there. They win the title in 18, 2019 season ends in a whimper. Uh, but so I feel like people maybe kind of didn't realize, you know, like it's, it's just such a weird thing. Not, not that people didn't realize that his season was over and they forgot about him over the last couple of weeks. But, you know, by the time that he's accepting the golden spikes award and that we're naming him player of the year and all of that, like he's just wearing a suit in Omaha and, you know, it was just kind of a weird Thing like, oh yeah, remember how you played here the last two years, and now you're like you've already been drafted and everything. So the fact that the draft is now later maybe keeps Rocker front of mind more, regardless of how far Vanderbilt plays into the into the postseason. I think though, um, you know, if he finishes extraordinarily well, even if Vanderbilt doesn't doesn't play well, I I think there will be some of the, like, let's remember how good this player was bit, but it also maybe is a little bit dependent on how, you know, if Vanderbilt's not playing deep into Omaha, how he's being evaluated in terms of the draft at the time, because if Jack Leiter remains ahead of him on draft boards, then there may be a little bit of a, like, Well, okay. That was, that was a good career, but you know, is he one of the all-time greats if he's not going to go number one and you know, they didn't, they didn't finish as well as they were his freshman year. Like, I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting thing. And. I'm just thinking of this now. I don't know how good of a comparison it is, but like, is it a little bit like Trevor Lawrence potentially, you know, wins a national championship as a freshman doesn't get one the next two years. People are disappointed by that a little bit, but still acknowledged as like the greatest player in his draft class and uh, a fantastic talent and all the rest of that. Maybe, maybe that'll be something similar for rocker. If, uh, if Vanderbilt doesn't come up with uh, another national championship this year.
1: Yeah. That is an interesting comparison. I, I also remember that Adley Richmond thing, like seeing him in the elevator then it will be like, Oh Yeah you know that guy pretty good year but uh you know how it goes like by the time you're in college world, in the college world series that even the even regionals by the time you're in omaha feel like a lifetime ago like they yes. just really do and so um yeah that was that was a weird phenomenon where you you know saw him accepting that award and his team was just was just not there when they'd spent so much of the regular so much of the regular season thinking that they they might be uh
0: one more name here before we move on kevin copps the arkansas relief ace, is leading the nation in era right now joe uh it's an 085 era he has ridiculous strikeout numbers he struck out 75 batters he has six saves he has six wins he's thrown like 42 innings uh which right now is enough to qualify him for the era title he'll probably straddle the like is he qualified is he not qualified for much of the rest of the season that's the usage pattern he's on let's say that he does pitch enough innings to qualify for the ERA title and continues this ridiculousness but he's a reliever and so he'll have thrown probably 40 less innings than rocker and lighter and Hoagland and whoever whoever other starting pitchers you would want to include in this debate it's an unprecedented situation i don't know like would he would he be in the mix at that point if uh if he continues this at the rate that he's doing it right now
1: yeah if it, if he continues at the rate he's doing it now i think he he has to be in the mix i think it would be hard to give him the award given the unprecedented nature of that particular profile but look he's inarguably arkansas's best pitcher and you know sometimes he throws starters innings on the weekend i mean there's a reason why he's able to qualify for the era title so we can we can really kind of contort things to to make a a case for him. And I I would also say that he's the type of guy because of the timing of this award, he's the type of guy who could, you know, if Arkansas wins a national title and Kevin cops is, does one of those things that we see from pitchers from time to time where, you know, maybe he has a couple of really good long relief outings, or maybe they're, they're taxed in the rotation. They start Kevin cops, you know, and he throws, has a long outing where he's dominant. Like he's definitely the type of guy that could after Omaha kind of make us I don't want to say wish for a different outcome, but just think like, you know, this, this outcome would have been very different if we didn't give this award until after Omaha, because I think he's 2021
0: of, Andrew Beckwith, if you will.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a great example. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he's the type of guy that if Arkansas wins a national title and cops does what he does through a stay in the CWS and, you know, records the last out and for Arkansas's national title, like he's definitely a guy where we could go, you know, if, if, if this had waited a couple of weeks, like we might be having a, a very different conversation
0: it's uh it's remarkable what he's doing i uh i invited the, <laughs> the arkansas and mississippi state fans into my mentions this week by putting in a poll up about who's the best reliever uh included landon sims and kevin copps along with halen green and uh uh carson palmquist at miami and you know it's uh it's been interesting to watch them argue back and forth but you know, the Landon Sims is having a, a sensational year. I don't want to take anything away from him. And the question wasn't who's having the better year It was who would you rather have in a must win like situation where you need six outs. And, you know, so in that case, you know, I'm not saying I would definitively take cops over Sims, but I would say right now, like for all the Mississippi state fans that are listening to this, that are also in my mentions saying, how could like why is this even an argument like sims has the better era because it's a 0.6 era it's ridiculous and he's striking out two batters an inning like yeah but like he's also thrown like 15 less innings than than cops um so i i don't think that you can say statistically that sims is having a a significantly better year or better at all season than than what cops is doing and also cops has gone crazy lately um and has retired something like 28 straight patterns. I don't know. It's it's nuts. What's what's going on right now with him? So yeah, I think
1: like little tiebreaker there too is that is that cops also like I'd like the idea of the fact that he's like a super veteran. You know, like I think I'd like the steadiness of that guy. You know, I've been in a lot of big games. So yeah, I think 50
0: senior versus second year freshman.
1: Yeah, had I voted, like I think I would have gone Kevin Cops. Also, uh, let's pour one out for Carson Palmquist and Haley Green, who had zero chance in that poll because you, there was an Arkansas and a Mississippi State player in it.
0: And like, if I didn't tell you who Carson Palmquist and Halen Green played for, I don't know how many. Like, they just have not risen to the, to that level. But Palmquist, low key, like this I mean, is also deserted, why for sure. Like, go look at Palmquist's stats versus Landon Sims. I do this literally every week for freshman of the year watch. Even though neither of them is currently in the top ten, like I almost put Landon Sims back in this week, but. Pumquist is not that far off of Sims. Like his ERA is now like it crept up over the last week and it's now like 0.7 higher, but he has like a one and a half ERA or 1.4 ERA. Um, The strikeout rate is close to Sims. It's not quite as good, but it's close. He walks fewer batters. I think he's thrown more innings. Uh, He has more saves. If you care about that, Uh, it's uh, he's, and he's left-handed. Like in, in the terms of this question, as opposed to like who is going to be the first-team All-American reliever, like uh, the left-handedness doesn't matter. But in terms of this question, it's like yeah, maybe that matters to you that like get a left-hander out of this. And Palmquist, he has been an absolute weapon for uh, for Miami. And Halen Green has been outstanding for TCU. Uh, you know, definitely gone under the radar. I feel like as well. And uh, all all of these guys are multi-inning relievers. That's that's also been pretty great to see that um you know so many of the best relievers in the country right now are being used as multi-inning guys there are there are still traditional one-inning guys out there like Zach Gretch at Stanford is leading the country in saves and I think he's been used more as a traditional closer type but you know you can find a lot of really good multi-inning relievers out there right now which is just kind of I guess where baseball's going and uh to bring this full circle like as baseball is going to a place where relievers are more important Um, you know, maybe, maybe Kevin Copps is going to be a trailblazer as a reliever that is working his way into a player of the year discussion. All right, Joe, we're going to move on and start talking about this weekend's biggest series. It's a pretty loaded weekend. uh, So let's get to that here. But first, check this out. All right, Joe, we've reached the point in our weekend preview podcast where we break down the biggest series of the weekend give you some some keys to watch for these teams as they uh they try and win their their weekend series uh this week we're going to jam an extra one in usually we do five this this week we're going to do six the the weekend is just there's too much to pick from this weekend and we already aren't going to cover all of the 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 big series um at the risk of Angering in Mississippi state fans twice within the last like five minutes. Uh, we're not going to talk about the Mississippi state, South Carolina series. Uh, I feel a little talked out about <laughs> the Bulldogs and the Gamecocks right now, uh, but that's an interesting one. So so, uh, so check that one out. If you're, if you're looking for another high end premium series, that's uh, that's probably the best that the SEC has to offer uh, this week, but Joe, let's uh, let's go over to the big 12. Let's start with, with, Texas and TCU, it's a top 10 series. The Horns go to Fort Worth to play the Horn Frogs. The Big 12 title is on the line this weekend. Texas, of course, last weekend was upset by Texas Tech. TCU, meanwhile, uh, they swept West Virginia. And as a result, the Frogs enter the weekend with a two-game lead in the Big 12 standings. That means that they can win the title with a series win this weekend. Uh, because it's the big 12, I think both of these teams still have like an off weekend or a non-conference weekend. They're, they're getting down to the, the end of their schedule because of finals already. So, uh, they're not that many games left. And so just by virtue of winning a series here, TCU would at least assure itself of, uh, of a share and it would own the tiebreaker. So that's, what's at stake. The big 12 title is, is on the line at Lupton this weekend and, uh, Texas looking to to stay in the race and just get back on track after
1: last weekend's upset. I think it's an interesting matchup. I think the thing I'm most interested to see is, you know, I guess adding a layer to this is that Texas pitchers, particularly the first two days with, with Stevens and Madden, just weren't as good as they have been all season. So I'm interested a to see whether they can kind of get back on the horse, metaphorically speaking, but the thing about it is, is, I mean, it presents a tough matchup with TCU because I don't think I've really, I don't think I've really truly understood the degree to which like this TC offense has really been clicking. It's a team that's hitting 322 in conference play, um, you know, on base over 400. And it's, it's, it's not just a couple of guys who've gotten hot. I mean, they've got, let I mean, do some counting here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys who are, who are pretty regular in light up hitting 327 or better uh, in conference play. So, they're getting a lot from a lot of different guys. And, you know, we talked about in the preseason, that was kind of going to be what this offense was going to have to be. Like it it wasn't an offense that had a, you know, Luke and Baker when Luke and Baker was, was going at his best, which I know wasn't as often as we would have, would have liked because of injuries, but um, you know, it it was not going to be a lineup that was kind of surrounded by a, you know, it wasn't a Matt Nelson at Florida state kind of situation. And they're doing that. Like they're absolutely hitting on all cylinders offensively and getting, getting contributions up and down the lineup. So I think that's a, kind of a fascinating little matchup there with can Texas pitchers get back to being what they have been to this point in the season prior to last weekend and are they able to neutralize a TCU offense at home that has just been really really good ever since conference play really good overall but since conference play started in particular
0: yeah, I uh, it's a it's a really veteran lineup. We've talked about that before. How how old some of these guys are, how much experience they have. So in that regard, I guess I'm not surprised that they've clicked in Big 12 play. But on the other hand, the degree to which they've clicked, I mean, it's uh, it's really loud. They've they've done a lot, and now they're going to have to do it against, I guess, the the best pitching staff in the Big 12. They get it at home. That's a big deal uh, for TCU. They play really well there in Fort Worth. And uh, you know, if uh the the, the one negative I think for TC right now is I talked about Halen Green and you know what he how good he's been this season. Uh he did not pitch last weekend at Kansas, uh, or against West Virginia rather. Not sure whether he'll uh he'll be available this weekend. If he is that would be a big plus for them to have their closer back there. If not, um, you know, maybe that's something, but they have a decent amount of depth in the bullpen. Uh, I know that was something that I highlighted pre in, you know, if you rewind, I don't know a month now, I, I was wondering about how much depth TCU had back there in the bullpen. I, I feel better about it now. So I think that they'll be okay, uh, regardless, but that is, that is something to watch, but, for the horns they uh they need to find a way to to get some uh get something going here on the road they uh you know they, they they had two really bad starts to start the weekend um against tech madden had his worst start of the season tristan stevens didn't pitch uh to his best uh in game 2 and that's why they lost the series basically so if uh if texas is going to get back on track here and and make this a big 12 race go down to the end. It's going to be about can Ty Madden and Tristan Stevens get back to, to being what they are. And frankly, I'm interested to see what Texas does on Sunday because Colby Kubaček got pulled very early on Sunday in favor of Pete Hansen and Pete Hansen ran off a fantastic rest of the game effectively. So are they, is a change coming on Sunday? Is, is it not, Uh, or, you know, what, what arrangement will Texas, uh, throw out there in a game
1: three? There's also like an interesting thing in this series where it's, you get the on, on the respective sides, you kind of have the the strength for strength where you've got the TCU offense against the Texas pitching staff on the other side of the coin. You've got a Texas offense, which has been, um, you know, was pretty poor early this season, now has gotten a little bit better thanks to some some hot hitting from guys like Ivan Melendez and and Doug Hodo and Mitchell Daly and and Zubia has been better, Um, but still on the whole is not probably one of the better offenses in the country, like it's a nice offense, It, it scores runs in bunches at times, and then a TCU pitching staff that I think is kind of similar in terms of they've done a nice job, and I think I like this that pitching staff better than I like the Texas offense. If we can compare apples and oranges a little bit, but with that being said, it's also not a pitching staff. When you, when you talk about the rotation, it's not a pitching staff that really has somebody who's been uh, excellent or dominant. Austin Krove has been pretty good. Um, You know, Russell Smith, when, you know, he's missed a start in big 12 play, but he's been pretty good and and Johnny Ray has struggled. And so uh, what they're going to get on the mound is a little more of a question mark than maybe we would have thought it was earlier in the season. I mean, how does that play against the Texas offense that has been more offensive lately? But we know generally speaking, when they're playing their best baseball, it's not because they're putting up runs at bunches.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh that's a really good point. Uh definitely something to watch there. I, you know, I, I I just find it hard to believe that TCU at home knowing what it what it will know about. You know, what's at stake here that they wouldn't sense the finish line and push it across? They've just played really well in Big 12 play so far, and you know why would that stop now? Really, the only hiccup at all was the way they finished that Texas Tech series, where they were great in the first half of the series, and then in the second half, Texas Tech stormed back and won the series in Lubbock. And you know that'll happen. <laughs> that that'll happen. That that's really been their their only mis- misstep to this point, and. You know, I, I I expect the TCU finishes here. And if they do, uh, TCU has a top five, top four RPI right now. And, you know, as Big 12 champs with that RPI, that will ensure them being a top eight seed and quite likely a very high top eight seed in the tournament. An interesting thing that I looked up over the weekend, Joe, is that in, uh, in, in the NCAA tournament play at Lupton, uh, TCU basically never loses. They're like something like twenty-six and four. I don't have the exact one in front of me, but I, it, it's something outlandish like that. They've lost one home regional or super regional ever under Jim Schlossnagle, and it was like more than a decade ago. It was when the TCU was still ramping up. If they get to play at home, and it sure looks like they will, up until you know the College World Series, I mean, you can you can pretty well expect the Frogs are going to be in Omaha.
1: Yeah, that is really interesting. I I had not thought of, of Lupton as like one of the, the great cauldrons in college baseball. Um, but, you know, that, the stats don't lie on, on that kind of thing. And so um, that is big. And I think it's it's big that it also signals that, you know, TCU, um, you know, which which had scuffed a little bit for a number of reasons after going on those four straight Omaha runs that the TCU is, is, you know, back among the place where where it thinks it should be, which is among the elite in college baseball.
0: Absolutely. So, that is uh that's the Big 12 series to watch. It's the Big 12 series and series of the year, in fact. So uh that is uh that's TCU in Texas. We're uh we're gonna move on here and we're gonna go out west for maybe the Pac 12 series of the year. I don't know, we'll see. Arizona and Stanford again. This is a, a series where first place is on the line. The Wildcats are going up to the farm to take on the Cardinal. Arizona is in first place right now. They have established a tiny little bit of separation between them and Oregon and Stanford. Uh, But that could all go away in a hurry here. And, of course, getting Arizona outside of Tucson is significant. And getting them in a a more of a pitcher's environment like Stanford is also not insignificant. So an intriguing matchup here. Uh, The Pac-12, of course, does not have a tournament. Arizona already owns a series win against Oregon. It's not a case where they would clinch the Pac-12 by any means this weekend, but it would make it very hard for anyone to catch them. They've already played UCLA as well. Um, Oregon State still on their their slate. Those are the top teams in the the Pac-12 standings, but Oregon State, considering how they've looked against Oregon and now UCLA last weekend, really hard to trust that the Beavers would – uh, put together anything significant in terms of making a run. So if Arizona is going to be stopped, I think it has to start this weekend uh, with Stanford getting a series win on the farm.
1: What a weird season with Stanford. I mean, that still hasn't lost a weekend, you know, it, it had a COVID pause, um, which has been somewhat rare among, you know, major conference teams, especially outside of the ACC, which has had a little more of that than in, in the other major conferences. So kind of weird in that way. And, you know, I even wrote about this team and I still don't feel like I like have a super firm grasp on like their deal, even though, you know, I've watched them a little bit and obviously I wrote about them and talked to Dave Esker about it. And so I, you know, I've got some feel here, but like they really have flown under the radar quite a bit this season in the Pac-12 and this is obviously an opportunity to, to break out of that a little bit. And I think you're right in that getting Arizona out of Tucson, I think definitely helps. Um, and I think it gives Stanford, a much better chance here for for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that I don't know, like this particular Stanford team, like I don't know if they would have enough on the mound, to slow down Arizona. How about
0: Stanford with a four seven two team ERA as we start May?
1: Well, that 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 was kind of like building to my second point. There is like I don't know if they'd have enough pitching to really to really slow down Arizona in Tucson and even at home like Stanford really kind of wants to win the same way that Arizona's winning this year. Like their offense has been better in conference play has Stanford's like now they have didn't play a lot of non-conference. So that's part of that. It's kind of a weird deal, but like their offense is legit good. And we're not used to seeing that necessarily. They've had some good offenses. Um, you know, the super regional team in, in 2019, whatever it was, yeah, had, 2019, some, yeah. had some physicality to it, which was a little bit. And, and
0: that was basically the same team as 18, which didn't make a super, but, um, yeah, you know, those two years definitely some physicality to to that that Stanford group.
1: Yeah, historically though, not you know not what you do word association there. You do word association no. pitching with Stanford, <laughs> and you know they've gotten a little bit better as they've gotten healthier. One of the things I wrote about at the time was that Jacob Palish and Alex Williams hadn't really pitched yet to that point of the season. Now they have, and, and it's a little more fits and starts for Williams, but Palish has been good out of the bullpen. So. Perhaps they are rounding a little into form, but, you know, it's 472 ERA overall and 446 in conference. So some improvement there, but not marked improvement necessarily. So I I just don't know that when you get right down to it, like, I think there's going to be some runs scored in this series. And and I just don't, you know, I, I just don't know that Stanford outside of, I feel pretty good about Brendan Beck maybe. But outside of that, I just don't know how confident I am in them being able to slow down Arizona enough.
0: Stanford has had some physicality now that I think about this a little more, like historically, like Ryan Garko um, hit a bunch of home runs for them. Yeah. You, know, you think about Quentin. some of the, yeah, Carlos Quinton, you know, you think about the best Stanford teams, there generally was some offense there, but it was always offense along with the pitching and, you know, the pitching, like you said, this year uh, just, it, it hasn't been quite as good. And if you're going to beat Arizona this year, you're going to either have to match them run for run, Good luck with that. It's the best offense in the country, or you're going to have to find a way to uh, to slow them down a little bit. And again, good luck with that best offense in the country. So I, it's uh, they, they really present a tough matchup does Arizona. I think that if you're, if you're Stanford, you're going to have to get Brendan Beck uh, giving you a great start. Like I think that that has to set the tone for the weekend and, you know, then you can, kind of work it from there uh, but I, I think it absolutely has to start with the veteran at the front of your rotation doing something um, you know put putting the team on his back uh, at the start of a weekend I the the Stanford offense is um, it's interesting I you know they, they're they're a good offense but they don't they don't seem to have you know truly like outstanding seasons being put together here Brock Jones is been great for them and is probably their best hitter uh but you know if you just look at it 295 436 607 10 bombs 10 steals like okay that's a good year uh it, it's a really good year when you consider that he's playing on the farm but it's not it's not outlandish it's uh you know it's it's a i'm, I'm excited to see what brock jones goes in grows into as a player i'm excited to see him take this step this year uh, having quit football he did go to Stanford as a as a two-sport guy uh, but you know there's there's still there's still more to be had there and I think that the, something similar can be said for a lot of the players on the Stanford roster and if they're able to access some of that over the next month uh, you know plus they, they really have a lot of upside left as a team especially as you know as the the pitching staff gets healthier now can they do any of that this weekend I mean that's that's the the tough part here. Uh, because Arizona does have, again, like this elite offense. Jacob berry has been ridiculous. Daniel Susak has come on really strong lately, uh, to go with the, those are two freshmen to go with veterans like Bossier and um, you know, the many, many guys Arizona can run out there. So the the other thing that I've found interesting about Arizona lately is the, the pitching seems to have have gone better. Um yeah, you know, they, they seem to have found something that works there. Uh, Silseth at the front and, you know, some of the guys, you know, relieving Preston Price and, and the like. So they've got some good options there. And, you know, I it does look to me like Arizona is the best team in the Pac-12, on the West Coast, all the rest of that. Uh, and this weekend would be kind of a big opportunity to go on the road and, and prove that uh, they can win outside of Tucson as well. righty, moving on here. Let's go. Uh, let's stay on the West Coast, Joe. Let's uh, let's let's flip it to the Big West, where this one is first. I don't even know that it's first versus second. They're they're like deadlocked at the top of the standings with slightly different records, but it's uh, you know, there's no real no real gap between these two teams. UC Irvine is headed up to UC Santa Barbara, Big West title probably on the line here can't be clinched this weekend. They're going to have to finish the weekend or finish the season playing well. Uh, Can't just be about this weekend, particularly if they split this four game series. But at the same time, if one of these two teams can win this weekend, they would be in the driver's seat for the Big West title and for, of course, the automatic bid that comes with that. And that's not for nothing because the loser of the Big West might be flirting with the bubble a little bit. Their RPIs are not amazing. And UCSB in particular kind of missed some opportunities in non-conference, though they do still have a series against UCLA following this one. So they have a chance still to to add something to their their resume, which would maybe help them out from a, a NCAA tournament perspective. But this weekend, all about the Big West title, uh, and, and that is what is at stake in
1: Santa Barbara. It's all about perception with UC Santa Barbara because, you know, we we had them and we weren't alone on this. It's not like we were the the outlier here. We like really liked Santa Barbara. If anything, we were the outlier ranked. low on them. Right. So high expectations come into the year. And then you look at the, like in total so far, And I, when I wrote about them a few weeks ago, I remember kind of thinking this, that like you look at the the numbers offensively and you're like, nope pretty good, especially for an offense that, you know, when Andrew Checkitz was on our podcast last offseason, said like, you know, we were basically turning over the entire offense going into last year and still after the, you know, whatever they played 16 games or whatever, like we still didn't exactly know who our best guys were. Like we were in the middle of that. So like considering that, like offense, pretty good pitching staff on the whole, pretty good, but you compare it to the expectations and it just doesn't quite match. And like, I keep waiting on this team, to just go on a tear. And instead they kind of do this thing where they like have good stretches and they come back and just kind of, it's like two steps forward and one step back. It still feels like they're building to something, but they're just not doing it in a definitive way that I think I'm at least looking for them to do it. And some of it has not been necessarily their fault. They just really struggle to get healthy. You know, Marcos Castanon and McLean O'Connor, two of their, you know, really their two best veteran players they were counting on have been injured for much of the year, McLean O'Connor came back in the Cal Poly series, but didn't play in the finale of the series. I don't know if that means something or not. And Castanon has still not returned. So that's obviously not ideal. And the pitching staff has just been kind of inconsistent. The starting pitching has been good. The bullpen has not really been uh, for the most part. And Checkets would would tell you that himself, as he told me a number of times last time I talked to him. So um, I just keep waiting for this team to put it in gear. And I, I just am becoming increasingly concerned that like, this is just one of those seasons where it was supposed to be something and maybe from some things in their control and out of their control, it's just not quite going to, going to get there. And this is, this is the opportunity though, to kind of change that a little bit with with the series this weekend against the UC Irvine team that kind of has been the opposite where pretty modest expectations, but it feels like they've kind of exceeded every expectation in terms of, you know, being a really well-rounded team that can, you know, more so than we talk about teams that you don't do word association with offense or physicality or anything like that. I mean, UC Irvine definitely is that, but this is a team that has a little more balance than a lot of UC Irvine teams in the past. This is not necessarily just a team looking to beat you three to two.
0: No. And in fact, I think that they would much prefer not to play three to two games. And if they wind up playing those kinds of games this weekend at Santa Barbara, they're going to lose. Like, uh, that's, this is a team at least, you know, I I watched as as you might remember, I watched a lot of them against Oregon State a couple of weeks ago, and none of those were really low scoring games. Uh, they were all close games, but they uh, they were not low scoring games at all. And you know, if they uh, I, that's not to say they can't play those kinds of games, but I, I I do think that especially when you look at a UCSB rotation headlined by Michael McGreevy and Rodney Boone, who have been outstanding this year. I mean, we're talking about McGreevy as a it's a first round pick and um, you, you look at the numbers and you're talking about a potential all American there. And Rodney Boone hasn't been uh second fiddle really at all to that. Uh, he's not maybe the prospect that McGreevy is, you know, you'll find him being picked a couple rounds later, probably, but statistically he's doing a lot of what McGreevy is doing. Those two guys at the front of it. I mean, Irvine needs Trent Denholm, who has been a little bit mixed at times this this year in terms of the results. They need him to match up with McGreevy, and that should be a, a really fun game there on a Friday. Then Irvine's gonna have to, to find some other some other guys to to step up and they have them. They they have the pitching to, to do that. The one area that I do really like Irvine more than I like Santa Barbara is that bullpen. Uh the bullpen did a good job. In the Oregon State series against a, another good lineup, and that that being one of Santa Barbara's weaknesses, if if Irvine can keep it co- keep it close, get the starters out of the game, get into the Gaucho bullpen, uh, maybe that's the the best recipe for success, especially early in this series. The thing with the Big West, um, you know, really none of these teams have the pitching for four games. Like I think that we've seen that uh play out over the course of the season these two teams the least of all like there's a reason why they're you know basically tied for first place right now uh but that that is the thing i mean it's a four game series it's just a lot of baseball and you know sometimes covering that last nine innings has been a challenge for big west teams or, around the conference uh so again something to watch here if uh Especially if if the, these teams are, are playing tight games over the first couple days of the series,
1: yeah. I, in, I will say kudos to the Big West though. I, I like that that they went with four nines. Like I guess we can argue about whether or not that's the right thing to do, but but I will say, having covered some conference USA, like the a seven inning doubleheader just feels kind of weird. Like it, I don't know. It just feels very, I don't know. Like I don't really know how to put it, but it just sometimes it doesn't feel definitive in the way it gets decided there. And I think that kind of thing you know, I don't know. I mean, everybody's making lemonade out of lemons with the scheduling this year, but I do like the four nines format. I know it taxes pitching staffs, but you know, the the American is, um, you know, has done four nines as well. Um, so there, there are pros and cons to each one, but but you're right that in the big West of all conferences, which I think people would have assumed that, you know, the big West would be a conference that would be well-suited as a, as a typical pitchers conference to, to handle that. But I think that's where you see the difference in Big West players versus Pac-12 players, you know. In the best years of the Big West on the high end, the pitching can 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 really match with with some of the bigger conferences, but the depth isn't necessarily there. I yeah. That's kind of what you're seeing.
0: I, I'd say it's more about the depth than the quality of player because the the top yep. line guys are fine. You know, yep. you you know, McGreevy, Denholm, Boone, they'd fit anywhere. It's it's the depth that's maybe a little bit lacking. And um, you know, everyone has to deal with it out there. And these two teams have dealt with it better than anyone. Um, The uh, one interesting note here is that Santa Barbara in 2019 won the Big West. They snapped like a 30-year drought of of conference titles with that. Now they're trying for their second in a row. And Irvine has only ever won the Big West once. That was 2009. uh, Our friend Dave Serrano um, at at the forefront there. Um, they're looking, uh, for, for the first title since then. And and their second one ever, of course, the anteaters didn't have a program for a significant stretch in there, but, uh, would be, would be a historic title either way. I think no, no matter how this goes, Joe, do you think that this, you know, we're not, we're not here to make a pick, but do you think that we get any sort of definitive answer this weekend? Like, is somebody
1: going to win this series or or are we looking at, at a split? I think we're looking at a split. I mean, I think split is always the safe. And that's one of my frustrations with 4 game weekends, even though I understand why they are is because we just get so many splits and like, you never know what to do with that. And so, no, I don't think we're going to get a lot of, I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, I guess this isn't a cynical take necessarily. I just think it's kind of the reality. Like I, because I, I do like Santa Barbara's front end pitching. I do think there's a scenario where Santa Barbara looks really good the first couple of days here, but when you get into their bullpen depth, that's really where the trouble has been. And UC Irvine has the offense this year to really make you pay when you get to the back of the bullpen. And so, you know, I think if UC Irvine is going to win this series, I think it's really bad news for UCSB if UC Irvine is able to take a game off of frankly, either McGreevy or Boone, but certainly if they take both, like that's real big trouble for UCSB because I think they need to come out and, and win those games with their horses on the mound, because that's the path to winning is winning those couple of games and then trying to win some rock fights at the back of the weekend.
0: Also notable on that is if UCSB loses this series, it would be much more over for them than it would be for Irvine because they have played one extra series. They're going out of conference. Um, next weekend, Irvine finishes with uh, you know con- nothing but but conference play. Uh, they both play Riverside and Bakersfield, which uh, you're know, down the stretch here, and that's two of the teams you would wanna be playing. Uh, down the stretch, I, I would I would say Riverside under five hundred, Bakersfield slightly above five hundred, but neither one of them are really going to to challenge you uh, or challenge these teams. I don't think Irvine finishes. Then their their last one is is Fullerton. Uh, that might sound a little harder than it is. I don't want to downplay the Titans, but this is definitely not. Um, Cal State Fullerton of even five years ago. This is middle, uh, this is 11 and nine in the Big West, Cal State Fullerton. So it that's a little bit tricky for Irvine. Santa Barbara already has that out of the way. But anyway, just by virtue of them having fewer games, if Irvine does win the series this weekend, it's going to be very difficult for Santa Barbara to make up the difference. Uh, whereas if Santa Barbara wins, Irvine does have that series in hand so they can maybe um you know correct some of that a little bit just just because they have four games uh extra to play all right joe let's uh let's move on let us go to um uh let's let's just work our way back east and and stop off in south bend for florida state against notre dame the oma irish they have taken control in the ACC, they remain in first place in their division. Uh, with a pretty healthy lead, they are definitely tracking to uh, to not only host a regional for the first time since 2001 at Frank Frankex Stadium, but also to be a top eight seed. Uh, they're number two in the rankings right now. The OMA Irish are, are, are definitely looking like the OMA Irish, I would say. Coming into this uh, are the Knolls? though. They are in the mix uh, in in the ACC behind Notre Dame. They're in the top 15, in the top 25, which would usually indicate that they would also be in line to host. But things are not that simple in the ACC. Florida State could host, I think, if they win this weekend in South Bend. Uh, the RPI is not great. It would definitely be improved by it'll be improved, period, by playing road games at Notre Dame, RPI number nine. Uh, if Florida State were to win a couple of those games, it would really be improved, uh, and they would also probably jump Louisville in the in the standings, which is significant because Florida State lost a series to Louisville. So if you're trying to find a second ACC host, um, you know Florida State has some negatives compared to Pitt and Louisville, notably that it went one and five against those two teams. Uh, but if it were to get a road series win at Notre Dame, it would probably get past both Louisville and Pitt in the standings and thereby make up a lot of the ground that that they are are currently trailing those teams by because they, they lost those head-to-head. So a lot on the line uh, for the Noles this weekend. Also, interesting subplot. You got Mike Martin Jr. coaching against Link Jarrett. Both of them have strong Florida State ties as as former Knowles uh, players themselves, and uh, they worked on a staff together briefly. Uh, so a lot a lot going on there in South Bend this weekend.
1: It's definitely a big opportunity for Florida State because I mean you're right. We are kind of looking around for other ACC hosts for in a season when the ACC, like I mean, let's face it. I think we can call it now. Like the ACC outside of Notre Dame is is just very mediocre. Uh, there's there's a lot of good teams I don't know that there's depending on how you feel about Louisville day-to-day like I don't know if there's another great team than than what we've seen out. and it is
0: day-to-day they beat Vanderbilt pretty badly in the midweek and yeah, you know, start feeling a little bit better after what happened against Clemson
1: yeah in, in a season when they have mostly not looked very good in midweek games <laughs> like and they you know they, they come out and, and beat Vanderbilt on a midweek so what you know what do we know but so it's been that kind of year in the in the ACC and, and that's I think what's kind of fascinating about Florida state is I think the way in which it feels like it's been a mediocre year in the ACC. And this extends even a little bit to Notre Dame, to be honest with you, is that like, I don't know where the good pitchers are in the ACC. Like it has not, doesn't strike me as a particularly standout year. And that's the funny thing is, you know, Florida state, um, one of the, the ACC team. Pitcher of the Year favorite. Yeah, like, <laughs> like Parker Messick has been awesome. <laughs> like, I mean, he's been exactly what they would have needed, and Bryce Hubbard's been good, and Connor Grady has been good, and they've Davis Hare in the bullpen, like, you know, Scolaro has been as good as we expected. Like, there is also some real depth on this pitching staff. It's pretty impressive. But, like, therein lies the problem with this weekend, right, is because what's interesting about Notre Dame is, like, their stat sheet looks real wonky on the pitching staff. They basically have six pitchers they use, and that's pretty much it. And they just use them in all different roles and they plug and play. And except for John Michael Bertrand, who takes the ball as a starter every week, basically like everybody else is kind of just flip flopping roles. And we keep talking about like, they really just haven't been tested because we don't, we really truly do not know the answer to the question of like, well, what do you do? What do you do when you get past like those six guys on a weekend? You know? Um, and I guess the answer is they just keep throwing them. And if it's not working, it's not working, but this is our guy. Um, but Florida state this year is probably not that team. Like Florida state probably wants to win a lower scoring game or win an uglier game. And, you know, offensively for Florida state, you got Matt Nelson and some other guys have had nice years. I don't mean to take anything away from, from a guy like Tyler Martin, who's just an on-base machine. And Elijah Cabell has run into some baseballs lately and has 11 homers, but it's a pretty top heavy Florida state offense. And, you know, I think they can be pitched to a little bit. There have been Florida state offenses of the past, obviously, where I would hate this matchup for Notre Dame because I think they could have gotten to the soft underbelly of the Notre Dame pitching staff. But I just don't think this is that Florida state team.
0: I also think it's significant. This is happening in South bend and not at yes. Dick yes. Um I don't know what the weather is this weekend in South bend, but I guarantee it's not going to be as good of a hitting environment as, you know, early may would be at Dick So that's a, uh, that's a big one. I think uh, in favor of the Oma Irish the the, I the, the interesting thing here, like, I, I don't know that this is going to swing the series, but something I'm interested in seeing is that Matt Nelson has been, um, and he's a really good arm behind the plate. There's been a lot of talk about how good is he defensively, and that that comes into to play uh, in terms of what his draft stock is. Notre Dame wants to run. If they get the right guys on base, they're going to run. And can he control that? There, it'll, it'll be a big weekend for him defensively. And then they also need him to be doing it offensively. So uh, big weekend, big showcase for Matt Nelson, obviously a huge series overall for the Knowles. And you, you mentioned how good Florida State's pitching staff has been. It's really, really, really been impressive. Uh, Jimmy Bellinger has done a great job with that pitching staff. Um, you know, Parker Messick has been great at the front of the rotation like you said they found a lot of depth i like the bullpen um you know it, it might be a pretty low scoring game here and uh you know that theoretically favors both of these teams but i guess it would probably most favor notre dame as the home team that that would seem to be the way that that i would i would go on that but uh yeah not necessarily what you would expect from a florida state team but they are they're eighth in the country in era with a 3.2 it's uh, it's it's been fantastic for for them, and in a year where there were a lot more returning pieces offensively than on the mound, it's uh, it, it's really been a very impressive showing by the Knowles and by Jimmy Bellinger
1: leading that staff. And you heard it here first. Florida State's a pitching school now. Um, it, <laughs> closing the loop on the weather thing, I think. I mean, I think you're right, just in general. But weather uh, in South Bend highs in like the mid 50s, and Sunday looks like a nice typical. Um, Midwestern spring day of a uh, 60% chance of precipitation and a high of 52. So um, certainly not going to be Tallahassee weather there. So I think you're, yeah. you're, your, you know, your, your um, guesses are right there. And of course, you know, you never know what the wind in the Midwest, what that's going to be doing. If the wind is blowing in, obviously it adds a whole nother whole nother layer of, of, of difficulty there. Florida state. So it's, it's so funny this year, man. Cause like, you're right. Like there was, there was a lot of returning talent on this, offense that we felt really really good about and a lot of those guys are like i said earlier having nice years like i don't really they're they're you know a few examples bad offensively it just hasn't it hasn't clicked the way that
0: like you know we ranked them in the top 10 because we thought that it would click they would take a step forward and eh, they've been it's been a good not great offense
1: and it's just like one of those deals where you can think about it two ways like If you're kind of a negative thinking Florida State fan, you might be thinking like, my goodness, if if our offense was playing up to potential, like we're maybe a national title contender. And then there's the the more optimistic Florida State fan, which is like, well, we're probably pitching, you know, at a degree above what we should have been able to expect us to pitch. And then, you know, maybe that just kind of makes up for the offense being like a, a standard deviation worse than we thought it was going to be. So depending on your personal disposition, I think you can think of it a couple of different ways.
0: And I mean, there's also, I mean, it's probably too late to expect the offense to get a whole lot better than it is, but, you know, maybe there's still some room for for improvement if if they're able to get somebody else hot to go with Nelson. Uh, One last thing before we move on here, Joe, Nico Cavadas versus Matt Nelson. Who has more home runs this weekend? Ooh.
1: I'm going to go Cavadas because I think Notre Dame, I think, especially with how hot Matt Nelson has been. I mean, if the games are close, like I just, I have a hard time thinking that, that Nelson's going to get a lot to hit. And that's the other thing about Matt Nelson too. Like his strikeout to walk ratio is not one you would expect from a guy hitting that many home runs. Like having not watched dozens of bat Nelson at bats, like you would think his walk rate might be a little higher. So maybe he could be pitched to in terms of maybe try to get him to do a little bit too much. You know, sometimes hitters will have like a little heat check weekend where they've been feeling themselves and they have a weekend where maybe they're just trying to trying to be a superhero a little bit too much. So maybe, you know, I just think they can pitch around him a little bit more given Florida State's lineup than you can with, with Notre Dame lineup and, you know, being at home, I think helps a little bit.
0: Yeah. I think that's fair. I uh, notable with the, the what you're talking about with the the walk rate and the K rate and everything like, I had a question in the chat about, like, why does Caden Grice keep getting pitched to at Clemson? Because also, like, Clemson's lineup outside of Grice doesn't have that much power. So, like, why are teams allowing Caden Grice, like he did last weekend, to go crazy against them? And, I mean, it's because Caden Grice is striking out at a pretty elevated rate. So, I think what we're finding, you know, I, I would have to go into this a little more, but I think what we're finding is... That some of these home run leaders this year can be pitched to a little bit, and maybe that's why they're getting pitched to, and then the mistakes get made and they hit them out. But if you do pitch to them, you can strike them out, and um, yeah, you know, they're just maybe not as complete as some of the other other hitters. I don't mean that necessarily for Matt Nelson, but he is not the world's most patient hitter at all. It's not, um, it's not what Tyler Martin is doing up at the plate. That's for sure. All righty. Um, let us go now for the last series I have picked out to Greenville, North Carolina. It is Tulane and East Carolina, the top two teams in the American, but they're not in the order that I would have expected it to be. Uh, Tulane last weekend grabbed first place away from East Carolina in the American. East Carolina is still the ranked team here. Uh, Tulane's still not ranked. Um, thanks to what happened in the non-conference and the fact that it's close and all the rest of that. But ECU, the last two weekends has split. They've split these four-game weekends against UCF and Wichita. Tulane has made some serious head at home over the last couple of weekends. And they now come into this in first place. And for ECU, they have seen their RPI slide uh, over the last couple of weeks. They are no longer what I would consider to be a... uh, a lock to host, uh, they really could use this weekend, uh, especially with again that that host site cut down happening. Uh, you know, next week this is a chance to make a statement to say that no, we are the best team in the American. If they don't do that, if they walk away from this weekend still not in first place, or at least not having won the series, I'm trying to do the math here real quick. If they actually if they do go three and one, if they automatically move into first place, but if if there's still some question. I don't know the pirates, which at times have looked like a top eight seed this year might are, are suddenly much closer to the host bubble line than they would like to be.
1: Yeah. I think it's one of a number of reasons why I think, you know, whether or not it ends up being enough or not, we'll have to see, but, but I do think we're going to see kind of an angry motivated ECU team this weekend. They are one of the teams, not unlike a Texas tech. We've talked about this before. They do tend to play pretty angry. And I think, um, you know, I think, they're probably frustrated they've split the last couple of weekends they're no longer in first place they're all of those things so you know I think Tulane is going to get a pretty good test this weekend in Greenville and we also know that Greenville is a good home field advantage I mean typically it's also because of things like the jungle out in left field and they they pack the place and some of those things don't matter to the degree they normally do in in this uh, COVID season but that will still be a road series it's still a tough place to get to yeah. Fly into Raleigh-Durham and then you drive a couple hours east and then you have to drive it back at the end. Like it's just not a not an easy road trip. So all of that kind of comes into play and I think one thing that matters here too is a big part of Tulane's push over the last few weeks which is what I wrote about in Three Strikes this week is that this group of young hitters is kind of growing up a little bit where catcher Bennett Lee is hitting over 500 in conference and you've got freshmen in Jacob Prairie and Chase Engelhard that are having you know, outstanding years and have been better in conference than they were overall. And, and Colin Burns, who's still a young player and an experienced player more so than a young player, but has been outstanding this year. And he's, he's really been, you know, best, you know, uh, power speed combination on the team, but it's, it's a young team offensively. And how well do they deal with, you know, a tough road trip, you know, now they've played at Starkville earlier this year. So they, they do have some experience in, in hospitable environments and environments, speaking of places that are tough to get to. So, They won't be complete uh, newbies to that kind of thing, but it is um, definitely going to be a more challenging series than what they've seen so far in the American because to the extent that there are tough weekends in the American, and and we've talked about how this is not the year where this is really a gauntlet in this conference, like they have played eight games against Memphis. So there's that. So also they have had a little bit of some fortuitous scheduling. So um, I'm kind of fascinated to see how Tulane responds here because I do think we're going to see an ECU team that plays a little bit with its hair on fire it's going to come out with some edge and how well does this young team particularly on the position player side pitching is a different story they do have some experience there and that group is is, is also quite good but um, this is going to be a little bit of a new experience I think for Tulane in terms of being in this position being kind of expected to handle this well and then do they actually when rubber hits the road
0: ECU has played twenty-seven home games. Joe, how many wins do you think they have in those twenty-seven home games? I, uh, twenty-five. They have 24. twenty-four. The three losses are UCF, UCF twice, yeah. and ODU got them.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and no shame in those. I mean, UCF is probably you know behind. I mean, these they're two they're teams third like they're, in the standings,
0: and yeah, they're talented. You know, we, I, they beat Ole Miss at home. We thought they were you know we ranked them coming into the year. I, it's a
1: good team. Yeah, no. yeah. And ODU Obviously, we know we know all about them at this point. So,
0: yeah. And that That's, was an extra innings loss.
1: Yeah, I, I watched that game actually. I remember that game pretty well.
0: Glad you do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think for both teams, Friday night is well. I could say Friday night. They play double on Friday in this conference. The first game is going to be important. Um, they both feel really good about the start of their rotation. Uh, Olthoff and for for Tulane and Williams for for ECU. In this case, with ECU trying to, you know, get the momentum back in its favor after splitting back-to-back weekends, uh, with how much emotion is probably going to be on the line this weekend, I think coming out and playing well in that first one is going to be important. And for the flip side, from Tulane, going in, setting the tone for for the weekend, showing that you can live up to the billing as the as the first place team, I just think that you know of all the weekends, like that that first game is probably gonna mean so much, especially with it being a doubleheader. Like if you can find if one of these teams sweeps that doubleheader on Friday, like I that would be they would probably feel great about being able to uh to to go off and finish the series over the next two days and maybe even be looking at a sweep at that point. Um I don't know that that'll that happen. Winning doubleheaders is really hard and winning doubleheaders um, you know, against a, a the quality of opponent that that Will be presented to these two teams is is even harder, but I, I just think that that first game this weekend is going to be absolutely critical from an emotional standpoint, uh, as much as anything else.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, the teams get a little more um, um, vulnerable as as the week can go. That's true of everyone, but I think there are some reasons why it's particularly true here. Like you know, Tulane really likes Olthoff in particular on Fridays and, and they found some, some, some bullpen guys, but they obviously like what they have early versus what they have late. And then East Carolina has been without Carson Wisenhunt uh, for the last couple of weeks. And frankly, you know, before he went down, he hadn't been as good in the, the couple of weeks prior to that, after starting off really excellent this year. And he, uh, according to Steven Igo, who covers ECU locally, uh, 247 sports, um, they're going to try to get him out there on the mound this weekend. Supposedly he was going to throw a bullpen this week. And as long as he felt okay, they were going to use him on Sunday, um, but it seems pretty clear that it's either going to be like a relief situation or a let's just kind of hope we can get a few innings out of him situation. So I think it's not like he's, it doesn't sound anyway, like he's going to come back and they're expecting him to be the guy that he was early in this season. It's probably going to be a process there. And, and that, I think as much as anything has been a big reason why ECU has split has these last couple of weekends is, you know, they can be a little bit vulnerable on the back ends when you talk about you know, you take Wiz and Hunt out and they've gotten two pretty poor starts from the guys they put in there. And then also you've got a guy in Tyler Smith, who is a nice pitcher, but he's not going to give you length. He's just, he's not, he's a four or five inning pitcher. And anytime you're doing that, you're leaving the bullpen a little bit exposed. And so their bullpen is pretty good, but if it isn't pretty good on that day, you're going to lose some of those games. So um, I don't know that it matters much for this weekend, but he is at least on the way back for East Carolina.
0: Yeah. And I, I, you know, if he's been off for two weeks, you can't expect much in terms of length from him. So uh they're gonna have to get some of those other guys to step up. We've talked about how good ECU's bullpen is. Um, but yeah, the, the more you ask of them, the the worse it gets, obviously. So uh it will be will be interesting to see how they handle those those younger uh two-lane hitters. Uh and, and how two-lane handles being on the road. Yeah, they've went on the road to to Memphis and Detroit and to Mississippi State, but it's they've it's been a lot of home cooking in nola and as as we know that the home cooking in nola is pretty good so uh they're they're going to be in a, a, a different situation spicy yes very spicy yeah. uh and yeah going to starkville going to troy like those are those are you know environments more like what they're going to see this weekend but they just haven't been on the road that much and some of that's the their scheduling some of that is that they lost a road series um that would have been at south florida due to COVID issues for the bulls but uh they just they haven't they haven't had to go on the road too much this season when they have it's typically gone pretty well even that series loss at mississippi state i mean they were right there in all of those games they could have won it um but they, it still uh you know it, it's a it's a hard thing to go on the road to greenville as for for a conference game uh or conference weekend with so much
1: on the line like there is this weekend yeah, this is my last thing on it. That, I mean, that's, you nailed it. That's the story of the year with Tulane's season is, you know, coming close and falling short. That series against Mississippi State took a 4-3 to lead in a rubber game, lost it, obviously lost two extra inning games first weekend against the Raging Cajuns, got swept by Louisiana Tech with a couple of close losses. Like, this has been very close to being like a, an outstanding Tulane season with a, with a win here and a win there in some of these other series, and they've just been just short. And this weekend's an opportunity to really get back on track in terms of that.
0: Absolutely. A very, very good point there. And we'll, we'll leave Tulane there. Uh, all right, Joe, uh, we did, we did a several series here. I guess we did five of them here uh, to watch. You got one more, a little more
1: under the radar. So what, what do you got for us uh, this week? All right. Well, it's a Mac series. So I will just kind of set the table here and then I will, I'll clear the paint uh, for a minute. Um, but yeah, big one in the Mac this weekend between ball state and central Michigan literally the two best teams in that conference. And and one thing I will say is as a part of setting the table here is that, you know, when a conference decides like the Mac did to not have a conference tournament, like this is what you really wanted where two good teams, you know, kind of coming down that there's no interloper here that kind of might back its way into a conference title because one of these two teams like stumbled or had injuries or whatever, like these are the two best teams in the conference. They're going to play for the conference title this weekend, essentially. And, there are also two teams, by the way, that I think could, you know, equip themselves well in the postseason. You know, there's obviously talent with Ball State, um, particularly the mound that I think would help them compete. And then Central Michigan still has a pretty decent amount of DNA from that 2019 team. They have had some guys move on and, and the front of their rotation anyway is, is, is excellent as well. So uh, I will clear the paint and let you just kind of talk about what you like about this series here. But I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it should be a fantastic series between the chips and the cards. Uh, Central Michigan comes in with a game lead on Ball State in the standings 20 and 4 to 19 and 5. They both have 28 wins overall. Um, and Ball State is five games ahead of Western Michigan, which is in third place. Uh, so while I talked to both of the coaches for a piece that will be online if hopefully by the time you're listening to this and if not uh look check back at the website soon after uh but there, both of the coaches were very quick to say like this isn't like there's more season after this like first of all we could split that it's a four game series so you know you never know and then whoever does win the series if somebody does uh, they're going to have to finish. It's, it's not as simple as just winning this weekend and and thinking you're done that, you know, there, there's still 12 games left after this weekend. And, um, you know, given how tight things are, if you slip up, the other team's going to be ready for it. Um, the really, like, I like that they're playing this. I like that the Mac doesn't have a tournament in this year because there are, it's, we don't really need a Mac tournament this year, right? There are two teams, like, let's just let them play and decide who deserves the auto bid. Anyone else, if they had upset them in the Mac tournament, um, you know, it just, it, it would have been clear that the Mac wasn't sending its best team to the NCAA tournament. What I don't know that I like is that they're playing this early. Like, I just kind of wish that they could have moved the series to the end of the season. And like, I I know that like that can't happen and whatever, but I wish that there weren't 12 more games after this. I, I wish that it was just winner take all here, but it is what it is. Uh, the first two games, especially, should be outstanding from a pitching standpoint. Jordan Patty from Central Michigan threw a perfect game last weekend. And then Andrew Taylor uh, outdueled Sam Bachman, Miami's best pitcher, who is Miami of Ohio, I should say, uh, who's a potential first rounder. Andrew Taylor, Central Michigan's second year freshman them in a two to one win. Uh, so those are the credentials of those two guys. And then Ball State's one and two, John Baker and Chase McDermott. John Baker is going to end his career at the end of the season as the best, or I shouldn't say the best, the most prolific, potentially, the most successful
1: statistically pitcher in Ball State is a program that has produced further back
0: into, into history and Brian Bollington first overall pick in 2001 from Ball State Luke Haggerty was a really high pick that year as well um, Colburn Fittick I could go on and on I, I know too much about Ball State history obviously but so that's John Baker and then Chase McDermott is this year's high-end draft prospect coming from Ball State uh, so you got you got really good pitching you got experienced lineups the teams actually I think look a lot like each other uh, which again makes for really good matchups. Uh, Ball State gets it at home. That may be significant. Uh, may not be. I don't know. Um, they play fine in Muncie, but you know, it's we're, we're talking about teams that are used to going on the road in the MAC. Uh, so I, I think that from that perspective, I, it it just it it just feels like it really is split down the middle, uh, and whoever wins it is definitely going to have the upper hand for the conference title. Joe, I, I've probably covered more than anyone needed on this series. So let me ask you a question. Instead, you can talk about the matchup if you want, but also let, let's let's get this in. Ball State is 66 in RPI. Central Michigan is 79. Neither of those numbers are numbers that we think of as at-large numbers. Presumably, both of those numbers will go up this weekend. You know, you're playing top 100 competition. For Central Michigan, they're playing top 100 competition on the road. Their number will definitely go up. If either one of them loses this series, they could both still get to 40 wins. There are 28 wins overall now. You add even one win uh, this weekend, as long as you don't get swept, 29. I mean, yeah, I'm then talking about going 11-1 to finish. Uh, and that's probably not happening. They're 20 and four and 19 and five in the Mac. They both probably have at least one or two more Mac losses in them after this. But I mean, it's not inconceivable that both of these teams end up with north of 38 wins, or with I should say north of 35 wins in that 38 to 40 range, potentially. Are those teams, you know, and, and they could have RPIs pushing. Into the top 50. It's it's possible for both of them to finish, I think, in top 45 in RPI. The Mac hasn't gotten a second at-large team since Danny Hall was the coach of Kent State more than 25 years ago. Should this year be a year that we're talking about? Two Mac teams? I mean, I, I don't want to put the cart before the horse here. Like they have to play well this weekend. It would a split would be helpful from a Mac getting two bids perspective, and then they have to dominate the final three weekends. But is that
1: crazy? No, I don't think it's crazy. I think it's a, it is a year to talk about it. You know, whether or not it, it happens is another deal. And I think you're right that, especially because this series is at CMU, I think a split here is, for that standpoint, the best case scenario. They may not necessarily have to get in top 45, but, you know, Boyd's RPI needs report, which is more helpful for the MAC than other conferences, because the needs report... not factor in conference tournaments obviously that does not matter as far as matt goes so you can get a little more of a fresh look at it and central michigan basically needs to win 14 or 15 of its final 16 games here uh, to stay in the top 45 ball state just has to win like 12 games the rest of the way and so i will say ball state has the better
0: resume too they have a series split at arizona and a series win against kentucky uh, Central Michigan didn't play quite as well non-conference, but they do own a series win at West Virginia. Not as meaningful as the two I mentioned, but they do have that on their resume.
1: Yeah, so I think a split here where Central, you know, stays in front in the conference, and then both of them finish really, really strong. So Central wins the wins the auto bid by a game, and then you know Ball State rips off the rest of its schedule, finishes top forty-five in RPI, has the to your point has quality wins, not just, you know, the volume, um, but has the, the actual quality to the resume. That's the scenario I think where they could get a second team in. And in this year where the committee is just going to have to, um, you know, it's going to have to think outside the box a little bit more because of, of some of the metrics not mattering to the same degree. Like I think that that is the type of scenario where this happens. I think, I think it's very much on the table now uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a lot of contingencies here. But it, it definitely is on the table more so than, than in most years. Though, one thing, I, I guess I have two things about that. One is,
0: you know, we've talked about Kentucky being on the bubble. We've had them as the bubble team for, like, the, the last team out for the last couple of weeks I have in the, the projected field of 64. They definitely do not want Ball State to become a bubble team at all because they lost a home series to Ball State. Like, they cannot afford a head-to-head comparison against ball state um you know they would talk about all these other things that they have going in their favor but ultimately you lost a home series to them i it would be really hard to see how that would go in your favor um item number two there i the i lost my train of thought the 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 thing here uh the the thing with the mac that's very interesting is they're playing a full 56 game schedule Things were normal, except for the fact that they moved up to 40 conference games by going to four-game series and eliminating the conference tournament. But they were allowed to play whatever non-conference they wanted to. They had 16 games to play with on that. Um, Big Ten, notably, playing 44-year conference games only. And, you know, you have these two conferences in the same regional footprint – And we spent time on Monday talking about how the Big 10 race was tightening. And all of a sudden there were more teams from the Big 10 that we were looking at as potential teams in the the field of 64. None of them have Ball State's non-conference. None of them even have Central Michigan's non-conference. And so how that's going to be evaluated uh, by the Regional Advisory Committee in the Midwest is fascinating to me. How do you stack up a team like Ball State that you can point to these individual players being very good. John Baker, Chase McDermott, veteran offense, blah, blah, blah. And also has a series win at an SEC school and a series split against a team that we're projecting to be a top eight national seed. They have all of that on their resume against a team like a Maryland or like an Ohio State or an Iowa or whoever that played well in the Big Ten. but And you know you can point to individual players but you have no idea what they would have done out of conference. They have no out of conference. They they have no comparison point. They don't have a series win against an SEC school. They don't have a series split against the Pac-12 champs. That is going to be something very interesting for not just the selection committee, but for the regional advisory committee to try and sort out.
1: Yeah, agreed. Uh, you know, and, and I, th- I, I continue to think that the big 10 is just not going to be evaluated favorably when it comes to that. I think, you know, I don't think it's going to crater. I don't think it's going to be a two bit league, but I, but I continue to think that the committee is just going to get between a rock and a hard place with big 10 teams. And I just have a hard time imagining them just kind of it'd be one thing. If they had to do this year after year and they had to start to like understand like the real, but given that this year and it's a one-off, like, I think it's just so easy to be like, well, we, we just don't know. And so I think it's a little easier to use that as a way to kind of, Cut a team when push comes to shove versus giving them the benefit of the doubt. And you're right. I mean, the more and more I think about it, the more I think that if if, if Ball State doesn't win the auto, I mean, that's a really compelling uh, resume, especially in this year when it's not just a Big Ten thing. This year, there there are just fewer outside of the top top conferences. There are just few super compelling full resumes because there were fewer non-conference games across the board. And in a year like that, I think what Ball State has done is, is even more impressive than it, it would be normally. And it would normally be pretty impressive stuff to begin with.
0: Yeah. I think the big 10 and every bubble team is probably going to be rooting for Ball State to figure this out. I have had Ball State in as the auto bid and I haven't had to really consider this before this week, but I have spent more time thinking about them this week and therefore have spent more time thinking about the possibility of them not winning the auto bid. And you know, this is a team with 16 wins away from Muncie. Their non-conference strength of schedule is eight. Their non-conference RPI is 11. Again, Arizona, Kentucky on wins on the on the table here. Uh, this is a, a, a team that if they get north of 38 or north of 35 wins to that 38 win range, and doesn't win the MAC. Uh, they may be able to pull it off and yeah i mean the 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 major conference bubble teams they, they don't need something like this showing up because uh, that's the kind of team i think that that can be um, very favorably compared to them and, and we've seen in the past with a northeastern uh, in fact has been compared favorably to uh, to a major conference bubble team. all right plenty of time to talk about that uh, in the weeks to come. The bubble will become clearer. and again for either Central Michigan or Ball State to to get there, they're going to have to close very strong against, um, you know, some decent competition in the Mac still, especially in Ball State's cases, they still have to play Kent State, Ohio and Miami after Central Michigan, all of which have high end pitching prospects. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about them more maybe, uh, but we'll, we'll certainly be back here on Monday, breaking down all of the action. From around the country, a lot to talk about, uh, as you could tell from our preview show. So don't want to miss that on Monday. And to make sure you don't miss it, uh, you can subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us and hit that subscribe button. You can follow Joe and me on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And we'll have all of the coverage over at BaseballAmerica.com throughout the weekend. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting this edition of the Baseball America College podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.